You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hey, listeners, and welcome back to National Security Law Today. This week, we're continuing our two-part news roundup with friend of the cast and senior counsel of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security, Harvey Rishikoff. Harvey and Elisa continue their discussion, diving into the U.S.-China relationship, shipping concerns in the Red Sea, evolving conflicts in Iran and the Middle East, and closing out with the debate over social media regulation and deep fake fears ahead of this year's election cycle. Lots to cover, so if you haven't already listened to part one, be sure to check that out. Thanks for tuning in, and here's Elisa. That leads me to something that I was a little shocked to see, but maybe I shouldn't be so shocked, which is that Arati Prabhakar, who is the director of the White House's Office of Science and Technology Policy, we've been talking about OSTP, she apparently told the Financial Times that despite all the trade tensions we've had over AI, we're now working with China to try to lessen its risks and assess its capabilities. There's some sort of a cooperation ongoing. I wonder how you react to that in light of what we've just talked about with respect to the China committee, you know, and this ban on selling to certain Chinese entities any genetic material. So the analogy I would use is that we need to have conversations with the leading technological countries. We need to set certain standards that we all agree when we create the AI that we have agreement of certain control. And as you pointed out, they actually signed on to the general principles that we worked out with recently in in Europe. And that we need that the same way we historically had agreed, which is why to get it back to the Gaza war has created such issues. We believe in the Red Cross and the Red Crescent. So we know that those were targets that should not ever be on the target list. Mm-hmm. Now what's happening with the Israeli position is they have violated and are using hospitals as military installations, as military depots, and therefore the Israelis believe they have a legitimate right of armed conflict, considered a full norm, because the, the uh, blending. But at least we all can agree that should be the norm. We need norms of that universal acceptance in the AI space. And let's be a little bit more precise. When we talk about the China agreement, what they have signed on for is something the UK's, I guess it's called Bletchley Park Agreement for Standards in AI. I guess there's one thing they've signed it. Now, whether or not they will honor it, I guess, will be something that we'll have to see. One other thing sort of related, I guess, or potentially related to this is that Elon Musk's XAI is now in talks to raise up to $6 billion from a variety of investors. And that is, at this point in time, a U.S.-based company based in San Francisco, as far as I know. I know they have staff there. But one of the investors, of course, is a Hong Kong entity, Hong Kong now being China. I guess the question is, is that the kind of thing, you know, that's going to fall under CFIUS review or bump up against some other sort of national security legal framework that's going to make that kind of thing subject to review? For our listeners who are not a kind of wonks the way we are, it's the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States for CFIUS. And I sit on CFIUS boards. The issue there, which I think is extremely important, is one, who is the true owner 
of the corporation? And more importantly, who controls the data and flow of information you have access to? And even if they control it, what legal obligation do they have to provide it to the Chinese Communist Party or the ruling government well, on request? That's <laughs> the second issue, right? So, yeah. you know, we have a lot of frenemies. We have a lot of allies. I've sat on a board that the parent was a Dutch company, and I'm now sitting on a board where the parent is a German company. We still are very emphatic about you do not want their interests to be influenced what's now a separate American entity dealing with vital American interests or contracts with DOD or contracts with DOE. That we need a wall, a Chinese wall, so to speak, between those <laughs> at company ownership. But the critical matter is who's got the data? Who's got the influence? Our interests are parallel in a variety of ways, but our interests do separate because, as you know, Germany's gone in a different way on dealing with China. They've been perhaps a little bit more accommodating than we thought was appropriate. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of like they were with Russia? or I guess, Yes, kind of how they were with Russia, despite all the warnings about the oil issue. And that's another great trope, right? Because we always mm-hmm. assume if you have economic ties that you be brought into the rule of order. And you remember the old Friedman's analysis in the New York Times, which a number of years ago said, countries with McDonald's don't go to war with each other. It turns out hamburgers are not as important as you thought they were. No, they, yeah. they definitely were not. When you have divergence of interest, correct. So who knows with a Hong Kong company, but that's something that will have to be fully vetted. Sure. And that could easily be a Sophia's referral, maybe yeah. even a self-referral. If not already, then some point down the line, you know, they could be brought in. And the consequence of not doing that is the deal could be unwound. And that would be a bad look, I think, for everybody. Well, I, I would say that the other phrase I'd like to have people come away with is the concept of supply chain. I wrote a book that we did on the national security enterprise a number of years ago, where we did chapters on the different sort of cultures of the different agencies inside government, outside of government. We never mentioned the term supply chain. Only after that, when I started working with MITRE, and we started looking at what was going on with the amount of intellectual property being stolen and the amount of our platforms having foreign entities, companies involved. They decided to turn off some element, how they can absolutely stop our entire ability in the national security enterprise to go forward. Right now, as you know, we have an amazing battle going over lithium. Well, sure. And other minerals, right? Anything involved for the semiconductor. And we're we're having a cold war over semiconductors. And that's this issue of if you get that wrong, we can be actually stuck in the water. There are two necessary minerals which are actually only known to exist in China, right? So just think about how fascinating that is and who mm. controls it and what would happen. And also, all you have to do is maybe delay the shipment, which would put certain things at risk. We're definitely going to do a series in April where we're going to use science fiction novels as cautionary tales. And uh, one of the first ones that we're going to do is going to talk about the control or the reliance upon any one particular natural resource. We'll be doing that podcast, looking at it through one of my favorite science fiction books, which is Dune. So that will be (laughs) forthcoming. You know, a lot of science fiction has served as a cautionary tale. And of course, we're not learning from it. Something in our DNA, it's our little, it's a DNA flaw. It's a flaw in our code. I just recently was in New York with a conference with the FBI and Fordham Law School, but they brought in some, you know, billionaires from Silicon Valley 
to talk about a number of issues. And the swim billionaire is working on the ability to bring smell to our computers. That's the one sense that's so critical because we can do sound, we can do visual, we're missing touch and smell. He's spending hundreds of millions of dollars. And the line he used, which I'll give to you as, but people have to understand, you're calling it science fiction. I'm telling you it's becoming science fact. That could be, or years from now, he could be in a hotel in Las Vegas eating ice cream and with really long fingernails and nobody around him any longer. That was a Howard Hughes reference. But the devil is it was Howard Hughes, who, by the way, did do financially okay. The financial backer, the Howard Hughes, that Howard Hughes tool company, which is the source, who invested on his bit drill that revolutionized getting the oil out of the ground was Bernie Baruch. And who was Bernie Baruch? <laughs> oh, my God. You guys have to look up Bernie Baruch. Bernie Baruch <laughs> was the bag man for the Democratic Party. Okay, the bag man for the Democratic Party. For the teens, 20s, 30s, 40s. In the 50s, mm -hmm. he ends up being involved in the Nuclear Commission. He's one of the wise men who helped finance that Democratic power for decades. All right. Now, we're, we're really focused people. We're really focused. Well, I, I, you said to make it entertaining. So I thought. Okay. Well, you know, it's hard for you not to. All right. So. Let's talk about something else. We've done podcasts where we talked about shipping, shipping being to a degree uh, an industry that has been prone to some lawlessness over the years. But we do know that a point of confluence, an important point of confluence for shipping is the Red Sea. And we do remain dependent on oil and other things that flow through the Red Sea. I thought one thing that was kind of interesting is China, which is, you know, opportunistic, not having the best economy right now. You know, they've got a very low birth rate. Their economy appears to be not doing quite what they would like to see. And of course, you know, you got to maintain the peace in a country with over a billion people. The potential for things to go wild, south and feral is always there. But right now, China is placing flags on these vessels so that it's clear they're Chinese so that they won't get attacked. Right. Now, I find that interesting for a number of reasons. Could this suddenly change things uh, in terms of our national security, China taking advantage of this and stepping up shipping there? Last time when we had some attacks in the Red Sea and on tankers, we started reflagging and putting U.S. flags in order to get the ships through the passage. And when one of our ships that was reflagged was attacked, we then, the attack came from an oil platform. We attacked the oil platform to show you the difference in the last 20 years that we've gone from having a U.S. flag is not sufficient to protect the actual vessel. It actually makes it more of a target, which is such a change in the way America is perceived as a superpower. And now the other country that is doing it to protect its interests is they're reflagging using a Chinese flag. And the adversaries who are fighting Israel and us as proxies, that protects it. Think of what, to use the pun, what a sea change this is between us and China and the Houthis and Hamas and the Iranians. Just think about that, how amazing mm -hmm. that evolution has been. The flagging usually has been historically, that protects you. So when you saw a British flag in the you know, 19th century and 18th century, that was British power. You did not want to mess with them. It's unclear when you mess with us, what's going to happen. And we're so terrified of escalation and having this region explode. We are showing unbelievable restraint in our response. 
And we're showing some other things. Let's talk about that. But before we leave the vessels issue, I think maybe the listeners should understand that one thing to understand about the flagging of vessels is that that is something that can be granted by any country for a fee. So you could Polish flag a vessel. You could, you know, Liechtenstein flag a vessel if you want. If you pay the authorities in Liechtenstein, you go through whatever processes they have. And some countries charge less than others. And so you'll see like a preponderance of, you know, Polish flagged vessels when it's, you know, a landlocked nation. <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, the flagging of a vessel doesn't always reveal very truly who owns the vessel and that they control the cargo. So that's something to keep in mind. But let's talk a little bit, too, about showing tremendous restraint. There does appear to be restraint, but there also appears to be communication. I don't know anything about whether or not this is true, but the Wall Street Journal is reporting or broke a story that said that the United States recently warned Iran that they should expect the terrorist attack that ultimately occurred there, which was attributed to ISIS. I mean, let's just say for listeners not familiar, you know, Iran is a majority Shia Muslim country. ISIS has taken the position that Shias are apostates, worthy of death if you go to some of their extremist rhetoric. What was most interesting about this was the fact that the United States, that has a dismal relationship right now with Iran or appears to, but, you know, seem to do something that we would ordinarily think of occurring in the context where there's a duty to warn. We have to explore what the origins of the duty to warn is and whether that's treaty based or not. And we don't have a current treaty with Iran. It's clear that there are certain states that have been pirate states. And if we want to start building a relation with them, being able strategically to use information that's positive and helpful for them is a way to begin the dialogue. And I think we do need a dialogue, since if you remember, the last administration tore up the treaty we had had about the nuclear power plants and the building of nuclear power. And now the Iranians clearly are on a path of wanting to get back nuclear power. I don't think the Biden administration has been able, though they tried to rekindle that treaty that we had with the Europeans, ourselves and the Iranians. And that's a scary concept if we're going to start having nuclear proliferation in the Middle East. That's going to, I think, be a high risk policy development if administrations should do whatever they can to try to cut that off from happening. So if we give them some information that shows that we have some goodwill, that I think is a way to start the dialogue, which would be, I think, very beneficial for us. I think the other thing is if we ever have a hope of Iran experiencing regime change, it's, it's helpful to be the good guys in this scenario. Right. We're the ones who warned because we didn't want innocent Iranians as opposed to its intelligence services or its military. Although I would point out Iran also has mandatory conscription, but we didn't want innocent you know, Iranians to die. We're the good guys. So we passed you this. Well, that's the theme of this. Uh, we call the title theme. It's how do you separate the population from the leadership? Do something really nice so you look like you're the better What's party. The and how do you hold population responsible or not responsible for actions of the elite of those states? Well, the elites tend to drive a lot of this, right? At the end of the day, you know, we're staring down the barrel of another election season. With uh -huh. the introduction of generative AI, you know, the use of deep fakes and the like, which are already everywhere. And we know that rural and older Americans are no more susceptible to believing this message. This week, a Russian plane carrying Ukrainian prisoners of war, and a lot of them, was downed. 
and it's not immediately clear who downed it. However, Russia appeared to be immediately saying that it was Ukraine's fault. Ukraine is saying this is false information, that Russia knows that it did this. And this is something it's done in the past. It's a technique that they have used repeatedly. And so I wondered what this made you think about when you inevitably saw this in the news and the fact that Russia was putting out this sort of upside down version of events that you know Russians seem to like to believe. One of the institutions I'm involved with, we refer to this as the cognitive security question. And that is the 25 inches between your ears, in your case. (laughs) And it's the issue of that's the final battleground, which is the narrative Mm -hmm. of what do you believe? How do you convince someone of what a fact is? How do you convince someone of what a fiction is? We call it, you know, truth decay. But the concept of we have, which the Russians, I think their goal is to have such confusion about communication, you have no idea what you believe. So mm, they, Right. I think that KGB officer was actually recorded saying that in Canada so 35 years ago. And that is, by the way, still available on YouTube if you haven't seen it, folks. Okay, well, I just participated in a conference in Australia because we don't have a five eyes agreement on how we should deal with social media because they mm. clearly are becoming fiefdoms of information. So when you think of where the people who listen to this podcast, where they go to get their information, it's a finite number of platforms, this generation. So we are saying that we need, again, an agreement among the five eyes and like-minded countries about when we say to the platforms, this is just a bald-faced lie, this has to be taken down. We do not have that agreement across the five eyes and the Biden administration was reprimanded for reaching out to platforms and told in a legal case, it's, you don't have that power to do that. We're in a world of hurt in this area and we need to figure out what is it that we will believe and a statement is made, what are the different institutions that can verify and establish the veracity of that statement is critical. And if we don't have that, then the world is turned upside down. Well, we don't have a lingua franca, and it's a pretty serious problem. And it doesn't seem like Congress is willing to do anything. We're buttoned up against the Constitution and freedom of speech and 230 of the Communications Decency Act. In that case, I was asked to sign a brief before the high court that would protect those platforms under 230. And I disagreed with the brief. And there was a counter brief that was submitted that I thought was done an excellent job. We need some standard of when the statement is clearly patently false. Empirically. Or or when the platform is being used to stir up terrorism or stir up those things. We do it now for trial pornography. There's been an agreement on that issue that the platforms have the ability to take that down. But we need a broader agreement on what we think should take place. And this leaving it to the private sector and Elon Musk on X, I think is a very dangerous path to go down. I'm going to go with yes, given some of the amazing and shocking things that he says in his revelations about drug use, I would say probably. (laughs) Could be bipartisan, you know, if that makes everybody something for everybody. All right, so I don't see any answers here. We're just going to have to suffer this. And I hope on the other side of it, 
you know, the next generation is a little bit better about sussing out the truth. The other thing I wanted to ask you here, though, is it looks like Cybercom has a new foreign disinformation unit. It'll be interesting to see if any of that makes it into the public eye. And if so, what that looks like, because, you know, traditionally, Cybercom really was only responsible for the .gov, really domain, really .nil domain, if you want to be more precise. Remember, in the 2020 election, they did have a Russian component that they put together that was looking at that type of misinformation. So Cybercom has some tradition, and it particularly came to elections in conjunction with CISA, which now has jurisdiction over these issues, to police some of those attacks that were going for clear misinformation, misrepresentation, and disinformation. Still feels like it begs for some sort of a consolidated agency with a pretty clear mandate, you know, maybe taking some authority away from some agency and putting it forward rather than sort of expanding this this ever-expanding federal government. You do know that there is the Defense Protection Act that gives the president extraordinary power to help police a variety of forums and industries when we are at a war. So I always ask Mm -hmm. people, do you think we're in a cyber war right now or not? Yeah, we actually had more than one podcast that we did on just that. We did not discuss exactly the foreign influence and the use of AI for that purpose, but that might be an interesting topic for the future. Well, this has been fun. I'm glad you came in and that we got a chance to talk about the news. You should come in again. Maybe next time we'll be a little more focused for listeners. But these were actually, I thought, some of the major events. And I would encourage, you know, like young lawyers, when you see an article in the newspaper that discusses these things, it's, it's nice to read it. Oh, now I have that fact in my pocket. Then back up from it and think, you know, what laws would apply? If I had to wrangle with this issue as a lawyer, you know, how would I, what analysis would I render it? We talked a little bit about the use of back channels. And I know this week it came to the fore that we have a back channel with our frenemy China. And one of the questions that I have often had when I hear about these back channels is, do the lawyers get involved? Because you're sending somebody over to speak on behalf of the executive. What does that look like? (laughs) All right. It's always good to see you, Harvey. Thank you so much for coming in tonight. And thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. We should know who is behind this, which is the members, the lovely members of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. But we have some specific people who run this podcast. As you may know, I write and produce and and host this in my individual capacity. But we have a lovely editor, Francis Burkham. We also have a terrific program manager, Rebecca Salido. And of course, the woman who really is the star of it all. Holly McMahon, who is also my co-producer. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to share this podcast with a friend, have an intelligent discussion, be willing to disagree on subjects without escalating it to something more, and try to talk to people during this election cycle. Make sure you stay in touch with your relatives. Keep everybody grounded in fact, whichever direction politically that fact may take you, whether it's your side or somebody else's. Hopefully we'll all be open to that. It certainly is interest of national security. Last word on this, the princess of Norway was delighted to enter mandatory military service. And one of the things that she said was how much it brings the country together to have mandatory conscription. So Harvey, at some point in the future, let's have a conversation about what mandatory conscription could do for the United States of America. I'm totally supportive of that. I'd love to do that. Let's bring it back. All right. Good to hang out with you. Enjoy your weekend. Thanks for listening, folks. 
The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.